I'm Dr. Jill Weiner. I'm a white woman, a doctor, a meditation teacher, a tapping practitioner, a writer, and I'm an aspiring anti-racist, an identity which I must constantly strive towards, work on, and reevaluate. This podcast amplifies the powerful voices of women and men in all aspects of the anti-racist space, along with some of my own insights and explorations on topic ranging from healthcare to spirituality to criminal justice and beyond. In order to provide a nuanced, educational, and honest examination of systemic racism and dominant culture. Hey there, I am so excited to have Jay McAllister here with me today. Jay is an extremely driven and intentional entrepreneur. At the age of 19, he cracked the code and founded Paragon Tech, a technology firm that for the last decade has enabled law firms and professional service organizations to eliminate an average of 10 hours from their staff's work week while increasing their revenue by 60%. And he is also an active participant and board member of Collaboraction, a theater company in Chicago designed to use art as a medium to raise awareness and evoke change in the world around such issues as systemic racism, gender inequality, and other difficult to discuss topics. Jay, thank you so much for being here. Wow. No, thank you for having me. That was such a great bio. It's almost like, it's like almost like words out of my own mind, you know? It's almost as if, yeah, almost as if you wrote it. I don't know. <laughs> Absolutely. You sent it to me. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm so excited. Um, we, we were supposed to record this um, last time and we got so caught up in like talking and getting to know each other that we didn't end up recording the podcast. So I'm super excited that you're that you're back and then we actually get to record part of um, the great discussion about the great work that you're doing. Um, so I guess let's start with collaboration. Um, actually, no, let's just start with a little bit about yourself. Tell, I mean, I wrote your, read your bio, but maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, who you are, what um, what brought you to doing the work that you do. Yeah, and I think it's just for your audience. It's what what a disservice we did to your audience by having such a rich conversation, preliminary, you know, conversation weeks ago, and and, and that's it's just lost in the ether it's now. Like, we had the conversation and it was phenomenal. So hopefully we can <laughs> we can uh, handpick nuggets from that conversation. But just me, I am uh, definitely your. I think if I, if there was one trait that I would use one word to describe myself, it's drive. Because it's it's actually, this this is somewhat of a metaphor. I'm a huge fan, of, I'm a big gearhead. So anything you can put a motor in, cars, motorcycles, love it. That's uh, during the summer months here in Chicago, which are unfortunately for us in Chicago, the only months where we can enjoy things that, uh, <laughs> you know, that, that drive on the road uh, without the fear of a sliding off the road in a snow and ice storm. Um, that's what I do. I spend a lot of time at the racetrack with friends, clients, prospects, and, uh, give, give, I, I give joy rides as kind of my, uh, that's kind of my thing in the summer. So if you're ever in Chicago and, and, and wanting a joy ride around a racetrack, I'm okay. your guy. <laughs> I, that might scare me, but I do, I do appreciate, I lived in Chicago for 10 years. So I do appreciate the, the, uh, scarcity in terms of nice weather. So I say like, whatever works, whatever you love to do. It's awesome that you do that. Um, See, I, I that's think why we're so positive as Chicagoans because we understand that, but in the, in the summertime, let me clarify in the winter that yeah, we're miserable, but summertime, we realize that there's not, you know, I feel like anywhere else that's warm climate, you know, Atlanta, 
as Georgia as a whole, you know, for the most part, you know, Florida, California, there's always tomorrow. You can always do the thing tomorrow, whatever that thing may be. Yeah. Here we have a finite window. So we're just extremely amped about getting it done and going and having that picnic and we do it, you know, it's yeah, it's true. I, 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 take off my hat to uh, tip my hat, whatever the expression is to Chicagoans. I had enough after 10 years, I peaced out, but I, um, I do love that when it's like no longer 30 degrees, people are wearing shorts and playing Frisbee. Anywhere. Oh, 100% correct. And that is such an accurate statement because as soon as it hits 31 degrees, it's like, whoa, who turned on the heat? And that's yeah. when we bring out the shorts and sandals and, you know, we're putting, we're putting tanning lotion on. Well, I, I don't know if this is video, if your viewers can see me, I'm not putting tanning lotion on as a, as a, as a fellow black man. I'm not, you know, I, I got plenty, plenty, plenty of melanin. <laughs> You've got the melanin already. Absolutely. Um. <laughs> but, but, but the second part of that is, which I think is really important that we're drive me as an individual, everything I do is in the aim of accomplishing the mission. What is that mission? I don't know. It changes from the day to day, but the constant theme is that I want to make sure that I can have as much impact on the world as possible and whatever that may be. And the individual activities that I go through on a day-to-day -day basis may change, but they all fall in line with that mission. And I'm extremely driven in making sure that that happens, sometimes to my own detriment, uh, spending way too many nights at the office, um, nights that sometimes turn into mornings, and I find my employees walking in, and I'm still in the same clothes from the previous day, because I just did an all-nighter. So uh, maybe that's not the best, most healthy use of time, but this is how I choose to uh, to spend my time, anything that enables me to have the highest impact that I can on this earth while I'm here. I love that. I love that. And I'm glad that your your employees are going home. <laughs> We let them go home <laughs> most of the time. That's good to hear. Um, so tell me a little about Collaboraction um, and what it is and how you got involved in it. And um, yeah, let's start with that. So part of my business model is that we are focused on, so I run an IT and cybersecurity firm. We have a focus on the legal space. So we're helping lawyers to become more efficient with their use of time to build more hours as a result and work less. So as a part of that mission, all I'm doing on a given you know, week, most of the activities that I'm doing are uh, connecting with attorneys. Well, I have a friend, uh, his name is Jeff Asberger, and Jeff was, is an attorney. Um, he's a corporate attorney. And he invited me to see a play. He's a big, big, big theater person. And he said, Jay, I'd like you to come to a play and just tell me what you think. Just all you need to do is come. Just don't do anything except just come. I said, great, Jeff. I came to this play, the Kennedy King College in Inglewood. And now I'm seeing the words on the, uh, when I enter the, the auditorium, I'm seeing the words collaboration on the walls and on the stage. What is this? I had no idea what I was getting into. Well, this was one of the most moving experiences that I've had to date that I can remember. This play was so well done and the themes that were discussed were so deep and they were so nuanced. But, the, the, but what I realized is that by having art, you know, theater as a medium to tell these stories, these fantastic stories about struggles and the plights of, you know, of, of men, 
of color or women um, in the workplace or, you know, uh, by uh, biracial relationships and some of the struggles and stressors there working in a police department where the uh, you know the Mexican wife of the the white uh, um, uh, male was being accosted by some of the other members of the of the force for them being married and there are pictures of the baby being posted on the walls of the police department saying you know you two shouldn't but you, you you don't belong together and some of the and then seeing the story of them going back home and the arguments and discussions they would have and where she wanted to quit the force and he said no like these are just and these were some of the stories that unfolded in front of me as plays and i realized whoa this is a way to communicate some really difficult to talk about conversations but do it in a way that makes it digestible and makes it easy for the viewer to just kind of uh, become part of that experience and to take on and to empathize with these people. So this was collaboration. This is my introduction to collaboration. Now, unfortunately, this and this was also Jeff's greatest contribution to me as a friend. Unfortunately, I think it, it couldn't have been more than two months after that. Jeff actually passed away. And Jeff's legacy has become collaboration for me. I really, so from day one, once I went to see that play, I said, Jeff, I've got to get involved here. How do I get involved? And he says, well, you know, I, you can, you can be, become a, a patron and, you know, you can, you can donate and make sure that this good work can, keep, can, uh, can uh, continue to be created. You can also join the board. And I said, how about I do both? And, and that's what happened. And of, of course, with, the, with Jeff's passing, this has become my outlet. This is how I feel connected to Jeff. And this is what the, the work that he did, it still lives on through collaboration. So essentially, like I, like I preface, collaboration is a theater company. But the entire goal is to use art as a medium to communicate really difficult to talk about topics and to dismantle systemic racism and gender inequality, pay inequality and all of the all of the the different isms. This is a this is a space for them to come together and into dialogue and what i love about collaboration is whenever a play concludes they will actually turn the lights on in the auditorium and then they invite the entire audience into a discussion about what the work meant to them and it's just such it's just a knowledge exchange where you have tears and you have laughter and you have joy and just everyone in the room from different walks of life all get the chance to communicate and, and and feel that they can share in a in an authentic fashion where they don't have to uh, restrain their true thoughts, and it just creates a, such a level of understanding with everyone in the room. So that's collaboration. I love that. I love that, and it sounds it just sounds it sounds amazing on so many different levels. Um, who who makes the who? Okay, so who are the actors? Who are the directors? And like, how do, how do how do the stories get told? Who, who decides how the stories get told or which stories get told? So everyone who's involved with collaboration. So first of all, they're doing some really transformational things as far as the individuals who are the, the staff of collaboration. So I, I, like I mentioned, I sit on the board and we implemented something called a, um, let me get this correct, a pay, um, pay equality standards. I think I'm, I think I'm saying that properly. Pay equality standards. What this means is that every talent that we use for collaboration, we're making sure that everyone is paid a minimum of $20 an hour 
to work on this, to do this work in the theater. This is unprecedented because before this, there's so many times where either the funding's not there or, or artists are willing to do work for a lower rate. We wanna make sure that everyone involved is paid fairly and adequately to be able to sustain themselves. So that's right off the bat, it's, it's amazing. But the people who are involved in this, in these productions, these are people who, like for example, there was a production that was done in the entire collaboration is based in Inglewood. Uh, that's primarily the community that supports Western suburbs of Chicago. I'm sorry, the uh, West side of Chicago. And within Inglewood, there were actually residents who became part of the production. So there was a video series that was created um, it, mostly due to, due, the pan due to the pandemic and COVID. We realized that theater, mm, that idea is probably out for a little bit until we can gather in groups again. So we transitioned to being not only a theater company, but also a video content creation company, creating these works that can speak to people. And we use the camera then as a lens to into these people's lives. So residents of Inglewood talking about the history of Inglewood and the things that they've experienced and, and the gentrification that happened with, and for the viewers who, who aren't familiar with that term, this is what we refer to as when large corporations come into an area that's typically underserved and um, impoverished, and they come and build you know, luxury hotels and shopping centers and things like that. They demolish some of the residential living. And, uh, and this is what happened in Inglewood. And this changed the neighborhood over time. And within this Inglewood production, we got to hear from the residents who lived in Inglewood at that time and saw all these changes happening. So it's, these are people who, who are a part of collaboration, as well as individuals, young people who are who live in the live in, and go to school in the community, who don't necessarily have access to a theater group, because unfortunately, those underserved areas, typically the arts, that's the first thing to go. You know, we yeah. we're going to make sure we get the core funding here for you know, science and math and, and technology. We can try to do a little bit of that. But the arts, that's out. So really what we found is that in these areas, kids didn't have access to theater because you, you need an auditorium. You need an audience to be able to practice theater. So these are the, these are the individuals who are involved with the productions at Collaboration. I love that. It's a really holistic approach to the whole community, to, to presenting and involving the community. I don't, I've never heard of anything like that before. And there might be there might be things like that. I'm just not involved in theater, but I think that sounds incredible, and I love the pay quality standards as well. Um, so, what you and I were talking before a little bit about about what I think you were already involved in collaboration when you had this conversation with your family, but but you didn't start off your life maybe as an activist or you didn't, that wasn't, tell me a little bit more about that. Cause you said there were some family conversations around COVID that really kind of opened up some discussion with you and your family members. Yeah, I think I still struggle with that, with that title. I, I don't know if I would call myself an activist. I don't. Um, these are, these are some real issues. These are, these are the struggles that minorities face. And one of those for me as a, as a young minority who's also a business owner and who is also very active in my community, people want to know, Jay, what do you think about this stuff? I'd love to get your perspective. And for a long time, I was silent. Again, the mission that we talked about way in the, in the beginning, mm -hmm. 
this is, you know, me becoming vocal about my views on these things that have become highly politicized. Do they get me closer to uh, creating revenue for my company for, for, uh, you know, obtaining new clients? A lot of times, no. And sometimes the opposite effect could actually be experienced by doing that. Um, these are the realities of the world we live in. So, so for the most part, for years, I've decided not, not because I'm not involved, not because I'm not, not because I don't want to be part of the solution, but because I struggle with the notion of if I'm too vocal, I'm going to come across as someone who is a complainer, right? And I don't want that for myself. So I, I chose to remain silent. Um, until the pandemic and the, um, you know, the racial tensions that arose as a result of the, you know, the, um, the, uh, you know, the, the, the riots and, um, you know, the looting that occurred. And, you know, I was asked on many occasions, well, what do you think about this? Is rioting okay? Is looting okay? Are they both? Are they, there's neither one, you know, and now I'm just faced with these questions and, you know, and now it, we live in a, in, in a world where, um, everyone's in fear of being labeled as a racist, right? Jewel J, do you think I'm a racist? You know, some people, the, the answer was a resounding yes, you know, and, <laughs> but it's like, how do you navigate that? These are, these are real issues. These are struggles. These are challenges that minorities face. Uh, so the, uh, the term activist, that's, that's one I'm still work. It's, it's a working definition for me. Um, I think to more accurately the way I would describe myself is someone who is, who has a platform to be able to enact change and who wants to use that platform as effectively as I can, but also realizing that there's a balance because if I, with the platform that I have, it can just as easily be taken away and then I serve no one any good. So how do I, how do I, act in a way that allows me to have the intended effect of bringing awareness to these issues, these topics of, of, of maybe involving individuals in these, in these conversations that typically wouldn't be exposed to them. I mean, I'm most of my day, I'm in boardrooms and, and I'm talking to executives of companies who maybe, you know, their DEI initiative is just something the company's doing to, um, to, uh, to fit the trend, you know, or to, yeah, to check a box. So for me, it's, you know, have, having real conversations around these topics is, is a new conversation for a lot of the individuals I involve. So, but again, it has to be done in a certain, in a certain manner with a certain level of tact, because you don't want to create a space where it is inflammatory. You wouldn't want to evoke an inflammatory response from the person across from you because they think they're being called out. So, or you don't want to jump down someone's throat when they maybe say something that's incredibly ignorant, but they just are not they're, they're, you know, the definition of ignorant is you, you're uninformed, you're unaware. So maybe they say something about a certain racial group or a certain, um, you know, uh, underrepresented or marginalized group, and they don't realize that. Well, the gut reaction is to just go straight for the throat, right? Like, boom, you can't say that. And then you jump down, you know. But that, what that does is put that person on the defense. So I've had to kind of weave the story in a way that makes it feel as if we're all participating in the common 
resolution of these issues, which at the end of the day is what it is. Um, so I guess I, the, the long-winded explanation for what I'm doing now is, you know, I noticed early on in the pandemic, this is a, this is a real issue that minorities face. My, my family, we had a, we had some conflicting ideas about whether the rioting, whether the looting was okay. Is there even a difference between the two? I believe there is, you know, um, you know, the rioting is, 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 uh, you know, typically violent. Um, typically there is, uh, there's theft that happens. There is destruction of property. Uh, that's right. Um, protest, protests are loud. They're noisy. They, they involve the public. They are, it's a ruckus, but there's no destruction that's happening. That's, that's the difference. And, you know, my family got into this debate about whether it's okay or not and about whether the areas that the rioting is, is happening in is, is warranted, you know, why, why this neighborhood versus that. And it became this thing that really was, um, you know, these, these are the things a lot of people are not exposed to, but within my own family, a family of mostly black individuals, I say mostly because, you know, it's, it's uh you know it's 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 2021 today and there are and there it's there are more and more uh, biracial couples and um you know we've got some in my family um so uh, you know in these conversations we had it became they were very frank conversations around the topic of of those things and created some division it created some 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 turmoil and it created a space where um it was that uh, we struggled to, to come to a consensus about what was right and what was wrong. And how can we have progress if we're divided, if we don't agree upon the terms and the rules of engagement, so to speak. It's, I, I love this, I love this, I don't know, story or, or interaction for so many reasons, because first off, like it's okay to disagree, you know, and for family members of any background to be having these discourses and talking and having it be okay to disagree, but still engaging. I think that's really rare um, in, in this day and age. There's a lot of uh, very polarized interactions. Um, and I also love, you, you know, people asking you as a black man, like they're, I don't know if they have many black friends or like you're like their closest black friend, but like to ask you, like, is this racist? What do black people think about this? You're, you're not, you don't represent all of black people. You're, you're a oh. human being and oh, wow. you're, you're, there's not, there's no monolith of any identity, you know? And I think it's so important for it, I think a lot of people don't understand that. And to hear like, oh, my family of black people, we were all disagreeing about what is and isn't okay. And, and all of those ex, um, opinions and experiences are all real and they're all valid and they're all people you love and you know, and you care about. Um, I just, I think that's really important. Yeah, it's hugely important. That's why there's no such thing as us and them we all have nuanced opinions and ideas about the world we live in. And we're so quick in America to try to create this adversarial environment where it's like us versus them. Who are the us's and who are the thems? Yeah. It's like, that's our gut reaction to do that. It's like black or white. 
black. I mean, I mean, there are so many, there are so many racial ethnic groups who fall under that category. Are they Haitian? Are they, you know, Nigerian? Are they, are they, um, you know, um, Ghanaian? Is it, is, there's so many different classifications, even within white, you know, are you French? Are you German? Are you Italian? So it, like, we're so, we, we try to simplify. It's like, I think just it's like we we don't like light we're like light switches it's either on or off there's no in between it's either you or that black or white and i think that's part of the problem because we're programmed to just automatically try to simplify things for ourselves so there's there's less variables to deal with let's just make it two and that's what creates a lot of the problems and the issues so i mean let me lay this out for you i as far as because i totally agree with your comment about you know the I'm, I, I, there's so many times in life where I have felt like this spokesperson. I grew up in a predominantly, well, I grew up in, in two different environments. The, the early part of my childhood, I was in a predominantly black area. Um, in fifth grade, so I guess I'm 11, my family moved to an affluent suburb uh, where it was predominantly white. And so I kind of had this dual identity this dual sense of belonging to both, both areas. And I remember being in my, in my, in my suburban school where it was predominantly white. And I remember there were, there were, uh, there, there was a set of lockers. There weren't, there, you know, there was probably in my graduating class, there were probably 30 black people in the graduating class of 50 or 500. So and I remember there was a section of lockers where all of the black people would hang out, right? We'd, we'd, we'd hang out. We'd, of course, you know, if we're, if we're gathering together, somebody's getting made fun of, either their shoes or their pants or, you know, and we're loud. And, you know, and this happened, they, they, they again, just to, just to give you some context here, they actually called it, like all the students agreed, that was called the black hallway. But your own, your own black friends called it that or like the other students? No. Yeah. No, the other student, we just, there's just, we're just hanging out, right? But they call it like, oh, black. are you going to the black hallway? It's just because that's, that's where we hung out, right? So I remember there was a student who, she was a white student and her locker was close to where we were at. And I guess there were so many of us, <laughs> figuratively speaking, there's only 30, but they, we spilled out from just in front of, you know, the lockers, the immediate lockers, uh, mine and the ones immediately next to it that it, someone or a couple uh, of the black students were blocking her locker so knowing that I had you know, friends in all different nationalities all over the school she walked through the crowd came to me and said hey um you know uh can, it's really loud over here can you tell like the other and I knew what she meant she goes can you tell the other ones to like quiet down and then can you have them move from in front of my locker because I need to get to it so I remember feeling like honestly I have no control over them they're all <laughs> their own people they have their own belief system their own identities I can maybe I can throw out and, and ask I can ask for you hey would you guys like to move because but I have no control I'm not a spokesperson that was the first time I felt like that this is a strange phenomenon so strange. There's so many. I mean, yeah. I mean, um, if it was all white people there, 
would she feel the need to like scoot in and like timidly right. ask one of the people to have like them move their friends down? Like that's yeah, very it was just interesting. Very, probably very would have just went to the person who was blocking her locker and said, because she walked through them to get to me. Right. It's just we knew each other, and I guess you know it's just like from a friend standpoint, and we and and I guess I seemed approachable, and I could speak for the whole. So second time um, that I felt like a, the, the black spokesperson was I had been pulled over. And by the way, let me preface this by saying I've been pulled over many times. Most of them were my own damn fault. <laughs> I will say, but I have a lead foot. So most of the times that I've been pulled over were my fault. And most of those interactions were positive. However, there was one interaction I was sitting in front of my then girlfriend at the time's girlfriend's house. I was waiting for her to, she was getting ready inside and I was waiting in my car. I had a BMW. Nice. It was nice. This is in 2000. I forget what year it is. Maybe 2013. This isn't an old B. This is a 2009 BMW. Um, I did have the tints on the window and, you know, it's all black and it's winter time. And whenever I drive, I hate the feeling of bulky coats. So I always take my coat off in the car. So I'm just wearing, I think I was wearing a some type of t-shirt. And I'm sitting there waiting for my girlfriend. Somebody called the cops on me for waiting in front of her house in the street. You know, so cops pull up, straight, you know, they, they, they pull me over. I guess I was already pulled over, but they approached my vehicle. I opened the window. At this point in time, she is just coming outside. So she sees this happening. She's walking over. She's like, and the and the, the officer says, yeah, you know, we just wanted to check on things. Are you okay? And I said, I'm perfectly fine. Yep. I'm just, just waiting for my girlfriend. She's right there. And, and my white girlfriend, by the way. Mm. Um, and uh, he's, uh, he says, okay, do you have some ID on you? I said, wait a second. Um, you know, it, is everything okay? Did I do something wrong? Or he's like, well, no, you didn't do anything wrong, but we were called out to the scene to, you know, see what's going on. And here you are. And I made contact with you and I just want to get your information and record your, um, who your, what your name is. So I winded up, um, you know, she, my girlfriend at the time she heard and she goes, no, 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 no. If he hasn't done a crime and he hasn't, and you don't even suspect him of doing a crime, he doesn't need to show you his ID. And I knew my rights and I, I knew that I didn't have to. But I said, you know what? Again, back to the mission. My mission at this point is just to live, to see another day, right? And, and to go to dinner or whatever we were going to do. It wasn't to have this discourse on the side of the street with this police officer. So I said, you know what? It's fine, babe. I'm just going to show my ID and we'll be on our way. So I, so she fervently, um, just, just implores me not to, not to do that. She's like, do not show me your eye. Don't give up your rights. And I'm like, well, you know, at this point, I think it's more important that we can go to our dinner. So I give him my ID. Well, just that's, I, during the beginning of this, the, um, the, the pandemic and the, and, and all of the, the, the social, um, you know, kind of discourse that was happening. I shared this story on Facebook. And I had people applauding me saying, white people applauding me saying, that's how you handle a situation. You know, great job being respectful with the officer, 
just giving him your ID so you can get a, go along and be, be on your way. And I remember feeling just like, like a fraud. I'm like, this isn't just because I've chosen to handle a situation that way and give up my rights because I did not, you know, and I've talked to attorneys and, and uh, you know, afterwards, and, and it's that it was my right to, in Illinois, at least, unless you're suspected of committing a crime, you don't have to produce identification upon request. It can't just be a request. Hey, I want to see your ID. You, you don't have to produce. So knowing that this is the truth and being applauded for producing my ID and just going with the flow, I just felt it just like this is not good because just because I've chosen to handle this situation and give up my rights voluntarily doesn't mean that the next person should and that that person should then be lambasted for holds for standing their ground and and upholding the rights that are guaranteed to them through the United States Constitution that's a bad thing it just it just made me think like wow this is just so flawed and again another another standpoint where I'm like you know I'm obviously I'm not the spokesperson and they were telling me like, yeah, this is, this is, this is, this is the story the news should air. And I'm like, should it? Because maybe it should, maybe it will highlight some of the injustices that are being done. And again, like I said, for me, I'm not someone who's had, you know, multiple negative interactions with the police officers. It's, you know, or the police that, as a whole, I've, I've had relatively good ones, but just that one is one that, I, that always stands out to me. And what they don't realize, the part that I didn't share in my story is, that didn't suffice. That wasn't the end of it. Once I gave my ID, I was actually asked to step out of the vehicle and be searched. And I was searched in front of my girlfriend. How emasculating is that? It gets worse. He has to run my information in his car, right? They do whatever they do. We, no one knows what they do. It just takes a long time. We just, we don't know. But so he goes in his car to run my information. I asked officer, you know, Remember, it's cold, it's snowing, wintertime. I have no coat on, T-shirt, outside. Officer, can I sit in my car while you... Nope, you cannot. Stay outside. He's in his car for 15 minutes. And I'm just outside in the snow. His partner was with him and standing next to me. And his partner apologized. He felt the need to apologize. He goes, hey, I, I, I know what's going on here and I'm really sorry. And I'm like, well you know, can't you, can't you talk to him, talk to you? It's like, uh, he's my superior. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here for you, man. Is he really here for me? Is he, I mean, right. So it's like, people don't realize that's, and, and maybe it's like at the point I didn't feel comfortable sharing that part of the story because honestly it was embarrassing. I was embarrassed. I mean, I got, how do you imagine starting a date night off like that? How do you, you know, how do you recover from that? So it's like, just because I gave up my ID did not ensure that everything went well and went my way because I then proceeded to give up more. It was like really a slippery slope. Now I'm giving up more and more rights. So now I'm being searched for not even being suspected of committing a crime. But of course, here's Jay. I just want to make sure I can go to dinner. So I'm going to give up that right too. And now I'm outside like an animal, just in the snow with the t-shirt on freezing because some he's getting some type of satisfaction out of it, you know? And it's just these are these are these are the things that I think add some nuance. It, it's it's not black or white. There's so many different scenarios, and you can't just make blanket statement generalizations. Um, thank you for sharing that story, and I think 
anyone listening will probably feel as as I do a little nauseated hearing what you've had to go through and 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 of course knowing that this is not an unusual circumstance unfortunately and I think this is why when white people and for anyone listening who doesn't know that I'm white I'm very much white when white people make comments like oh you should just behave a certain way or I don't like the term white supremacy culture because it makes me feel uncomfortable. This is when white people need to realize that that is there. It goes so, so, so much deeper than they've ever had to experience. And, and for them to even have any thought that, that they have a claim on what, what should or shouldn't make them comfortable. I mean, that's how society does work. You know, it, it does, work to keep it's been set up that way to keep white people comfortable but but anybody you know god anybody who is is questioning if you hadn't done like if you hadn't given him your id anyone who's questioning that that would be the wrong thing to do you you have every right to do live live your life the way you live and to make the decisions you make and and no one has a right to judge that and for them to be judging someone who doesn't do it because like, oh, if you just do it the way that white people want, then like everything will be fine. Like that's not the case. Right. And it's just, it's, it's like, it's just insanity to think that that would be true. And right. it's just, and, and to be honest, these, at least for me, I'll speak for myself because that's all I can speak for. That's the only person I can speak for. It's, I don't want to be viewed as a victim. I really don't. I really despise, it's like, um, you know, this victim syndrome, like, I'm not a victim. I'm not a victim. Um, and even sharing that story, it almost makes me feel guilty for sharing that. Cause I'm like, well, don't, you know, don't, I almost want to preface it. Like, don't look, I'm, I'm a, I'm an adult. I can handle these situations. I guess at the time I wasn't, I think I was 17 or eight, may have been 17 or 18, but you know, I can handle myself. And this is just something I'm sharing for context, but don't pity me and don't view me as a victim. And I think it's part of that, that, you know, that's why I haven't shared a lot of these stories, because I don't, you know, I don't view myself as a victim of circumstance or as someone who has immovable, insurmountable barriers that I can't somehow use ingenuity to 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 avoid or or to circumvent so it's just i mean that's the case but i mean there's there's smaller things even like this is this is something that may resonate with some people and i remember being in high school this is my junior year in high school so i'm 17 and i'm taking a um a, a u.s history class and it was actually one of my favorite classes mainly because the teacher was, he was the fun teacher. He was the guy who he connected really well with the students. Everyone loved him. People took his class who had no interest in history at all, but they just wanted to have an hour every day for a semester or whatever, two or whatever it was with this, with this teacher. And, um, you know, I had a lot of respect for him, but I remember one day in particular where we were talking about the three-fifths compromise and for people who don't know what the three-fifths compromise was, this was when the U.S. was, uh, when, when um, uh, basically the U.S. was looking to implement a system for voting and how it would count its citizens into that 
uh, I'm not explaining that property properly. Basically, how the U.S. would handle the process. Yeah, exactly. How the U.S. would handle the process of, of voting and which, which people were eligible eligible to vote because you got a certain number of representatives per capita. You know, so if you have I forget what the number is five you know 500 uh, residents means you get one representative. So obviously, the more representatives ha you have, the more voting power you had. Well, now there was this there was this incentive for Southern states to count their black citizens as into that voter count, even people who were not black landowning citizens. So they came up with this thing called the three-fifths compromise, where we're going to, because you're, you're black and we still don't view you as a full person, we're going to give you three-fifths of, of the count. So it takes two people really to have equal one person a little bit over one because three-fifths is you know three-fifths so as we're talking about this concept and how black people were voted or were, were counted as three-fifths per black person there was uh, we were pairing up for a project or a group some group work later on that day and another student who was actually a minority of asian descent he was was tasked with splitting us all into groups so he starts the count. He goes one, two, three. He gets to me three and three fifths. The class erupts into laughter, including the teacher. Oh God! And here I am, just like I, 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 I consider myself a pretty funny guy. I got the setup of the joke. It was just how do you, you know? I'm not, I'm the only black person in the class, and now I'm just sitting here. You know, I'm the butt of the joke. It's a racial joke. And it's just, what do you, how do you handle that situation? If I were to put up a, a big stink about it, now I become like that guy. He's like, oh, you're taking it too seriously. Come on, lighten up. It's just a joke. You know, so I went along with it. I laughed and remember, and I remember just feeling like this is just not right. Cause I had to. It's like, I didn't have to. I chose to. Everyone else was laughing and I chose to take the path of least resistance and the laugh with them. Later on that class, the teacher repeats the joke again. He goes, well, remember, you guys are group three and three fifths, right? And everyone laughs again. And I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, I laugh about it. And it's just like, I remember just feeling so traumatized. I went home and I'm just like, that was not cool. And I remember feeling just mad at myself for not sticking up for myself. It's like, you know what? I should have been like, I, you know, I get the joke, but come on, guys, let's really like, okay, I get it. Yeah, three fifths. It's funny, but like, it's really not something to joke about. Um, and I didn't. So that's something I carry with me. But these are some of these, this is, this is, this is not a black man who was gunned down by a white police officer. This is not someone who was peacefully protesting and was maced. This is relatively benign, but it has a similar effect of just dividing and creating this situation where you as the, the black person don't know how to proceed and, and don't know how to socially navigate that scenario and wind up feeling like less less than as a result. So, I mean, these are, again, I, and I've never shared that story ever. This is the first time I ever shared that story, but it's just like, to me, these are the, these are the stories that need to be told because I think this brings humanity to this issue and it brings nuance because it's not as simple as black and white. Yeah. 
Well, Jay, thank you for sharing. And, and you know, I, you were right. You're not a victim. And I think you're, you know, everything about you is wonderful and strong and courageous. And as I feel like, I don't know if survivor or, you know, there, there, there is a word because you have been put through crap, you know, and you continue to have to like have the chance of that all the time. Um, so there it's, you're not imagining <laughs> the things that happened, obviously, I know you don't need me to tell you that, but, but like that white people need to hear those stories in order to be like, oh, he's a human being with feelings and like, that's really bad. And I should do something like I, that's the thing that continues to get me is that, and, and other people is like, why does it take that? for people to realize, for white people to realize that it's wrong. Why should it take these stories? Because it doesn't happen in the reverse direction. You know, that that doesn't, it doesn't happen that way. So, um, and I'm so grateful that you shared and were vulnerable and thank you for for trusting me and, and my audience with that story. Um, and that's, I mean, there's nothing to say. There's nothing to say. You, you are, you've had your lived experiences and, um, have dealt with them. I mean, I don't, it's, <laughs> you're, you're not safe to do whatever you want to do. You know, you're not, it, and if you don't feel safe, you have to trust that, you know? So my, my, the question I've always had, I've always had is out of that class of 30, how come not one person voiced that right it's not okay no one no one stood up for me I had to stand up for myself or not right but no one was like hey come on guys you know let's let's rein it in yeah yeah that's that that happened a long time ago but let's let's make sure we're respectful no one the teacher how about the teacher the teacher the teacher out of all yeah. people he laughed along with it and re and, and repeated the joke later because he could get a couple more laughs out of it yeah it's just, it, it always perplexed me. Like, was it because, was it seen as just so benign and maybe no one, no, maybe no one viewed it as something that could be, I mean, here I am, that was high school. So that what I was 17, I'm 27. So that's 10 years later. And I'm talking about it with you. This just this 30 second thing. So whether I, whether I, submit to the validity of this being a traumatic experience or whether I suppress it and say, I'm not a victim. It obviously has some effect because here I am talking about it right. <laughs> 10 years later. So I just wonder if it's, you know, was it that it just wasn't viewed as something that was, I guess, negative enough in nature to be addressed or big enough, or was it that just no one felt courageous enough to to be to be an ally and to stand beside me because it was easier for them just as I went along with with the joke and path of least resistance was it easier for others too that's what I've always wondered yeah because to me it's like that's just not right I mean that's just it's there are certain things that are funny and certain things that are crossing the line and to me that one's something that's so easily viewed as crossing the line it did cross the line. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like there's so many dynamics in play there too. The Asian student, like projecting, like 
trying yes. to get closer to whiteness by calling yes. Michelle. Like there's so yes. much dynamic in there too. Um, and I, my bet is that like a lot of people in that room felt uncomfortable and they were all too scared to say something. I I, th- I feel like they may not have known this isn't excusing it. This is like understanding the like pathology of, of, of whiteness, like knowing there's not something quite right, but not knowing being afraid to speak up or not knowing exactly how to like say it or defend it or whatever. I think that comes up a lot. Like a lot of people are like uh, afraid. So yes, I think there were people there who felt your pain. And I think they were all silent because that's the, that's the culture of whiteness, you know, and, and, and that's what we need to keep working on. That's, that's, you know, the work that that you're doing with, with collaborate collaboration and, and the work that I do, hopefully and the work that so many like bazillion amazing people are doing, um, hopefully getting that message out there, um, and, and putting it in society where it, it is speaking up is, is the only right thing to do you know, keeping it front and center. It's, 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 uh, I'll share one, one last thing. I promise one last thing, which is, and this, this, this will be something that I think a lot of people either have been the victim of or have been the aggressor. And we're not asking for names, right? Put your hands down. We're just, this is, we're just going to put this out here. I used to have this mindset that just like you said, these things need to be talked about. They need to be up front and center out in the open and they do. However, I took it to an extreme. Mm. My mindset was if we're going to solve this, we have to all be comfortable about talking about things and being open and um, it's just equality across the board. So if you're one of my white friends and we're in the car and you know, uh, a Kanye West song comes on and Kanye West uses the N word. You know what? If you're my friend and we're equality, you know what? Go ahead. I know if, if I understand who you are as a person, and I know your motive and your intent. I know that you're not saying it in a, in an incendiary way. Go for it. That was my view. It's not my view anymore. I'll tell you why it's not. It's probably not what you think. It's because I've been betrayed many times. And, I, and betrayed is maybe a strong word for this, but I'll tell you why I say betrayed. That same friend who knows that I'm okay with him saying, you know, the N-word in, in, a, in songs and just in, in, but to, in the context of just him and I, my white friend. That does not give you permission to now when we're in the company of others to say it. And now I'm feeling like, well, now I have to defend it because now there's other people listening and maybe there's another, you know, maybe there's other black people listening and they're going to, you know, if they don't beat you up, you know, they're just wondering why didn't I say anything to you or, or talk to you about it. It's like, why would you put me in that scenario? Right. Why would you say this now in a group? And then it's just like, it creates a space of like, ugh, just, just negative energy. And it's like, Whoa, that was our, that was our covenant. That was our handshake. It's like, we, 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 that was behind, that was just you and I. And now you've brought it out into the world with others involved. So that's that's something I think a lot of people can can relate to because it's like it's not something that you can, it's not something that's considered one even socially acceptable to say in public, but two to do it in my presence when you and everyone else knows that I can hear. Right now, it's like 
you just challenged me almost. And now if I don't say anything, now I'm a coward or I don't stand up for myself or it makes it okay. Or I, it's okay. I'm put sending out the, the um, nonverbal signal that it's okay for everyone in here to say it. And now what happens if other people say it? Now I call this guy out. Now he's angry because, well, you didn't call him out. It's just, it creates this space. So now I'm just like, you know what? Nobody say it. I don't even say it. I don't even say it anymore. Cause I'm like, you know, it only leads to negativity. It's never led to a scenario like, yeah, it makes some jokes a little funnier, but I can forego that by having a, you know, a world that is a little bit more pleasant for all. Yeah, I, I will I will comment that, you know, for anyone white listening, I, I, I challenge you to never, ever say that word ever, not even when recounting a story, not when recounting that someone else said it. It's it's it is in my opinion, and I I think I'm right. It is never the job of a white person to say that word ever, and it it is like you're saying. It's like putting that out there, and it doesn't need to be said. It can be abbreviated, like you said it. It can be referenced in other ways, but putting that out there. People who are black, you are welcome to you know like feel free to have you know like I I have no I have no no. Um, no desire or right or uh, you know any any business telling you how to what to say or what not to say, or how to feel about any of it. But I will just go ahead and talk to the white people listening, or anyone who is not black who's listening, and just say like, don't ever do it, even amongst just white people, especially amongst just I don't know, just don't ever just don't ever say it. And like that, I feel like would be a good approach. Uh, yeah. That 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 uh, yeah, just just this gives them further context on that, that the person that I was dating at that time, the white woman, we winded up having a long, mostly successful relationship. I guess you could argue it wasn't too successful because we're not together currently, but uh, five, we, we were together five years. In that five year span, five years, she never once said it. And I tried to get her to do it a couple times. <laughs> I'm not gonna like, kind of like say it. I'm your boyfriend. We yeah, come on. She just like I don't believe that that's a word that I should ever say, and I don't think it brings any positivity. So I'm not going to. And I'm like, no one's here. We're at home, babe. Just you know, come on. Just yeah. <laughs> you can say I'm giving you permission. Never did it. Not once. Not one time. Good for her. <laughs> <Not one time. laughs> All right. Well, I have, uh, I want to be wary, uh, mindful of the time here. Um, Jay, thank you so much. How can people, um, just quickly, how can people uh, get in touch with you? Uh, I'll put the website for collaboration on there on the show notes, but um, is, is there Instagram? How can they find you and your company? Um, if they search me on uh, Instagram, my name is uh, Three Fifths Black Man. And uh, they can find me. I'm, I'm totally kidding. I was like, you must be joking. But, but see, but see, yeah, I, I can make the joke, right? <laughs> can absolutely. They, um, I'm all over social media. Uh, post quite a bit about uh, business topics and just relationship building topics. Uh, it's LinkedIn, Jay McAllister, and uh, pretty much every other social media, Instagram, everything's the same thing. Jay McAllister, J A Y M C A L L I S T E R. And my website is paragonus.com. That's P-A-R-A-G-O-N-U-S.com. Awesome. Well, I will put all that in the show notes. Um, thank you so much again, Jay, for, for um, 
being vulnerable and honest and real and um, talking about the work that you're doing and as well as your own experience and and um, teach being a, an educator and and uh, by, by just being who you are and by sharing your experiences. So thank oh, you. Thank you. Hopefully you can air this one. I know we talked about some some real stuff. This is raw, <laughs> raw here. So hopefully, hopefully you don't get too much hate mail. But if you do, just forward it all to me. And I'll... Oh God, no! I don't. I don't. I don't. No one give. No one. Yeah. No. If there's hate mail, I will not forward it to you. And I will. Uh, I will. Uh, I don't think there will be. But uh, you were. You were. You spoke from your heart, and you spoke from from truth. So. Um, so I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Hi there. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Conscious Anti-Racism. Please be sure to follow or like us wherever you find your podcasts and also consider leaving a rating or review. You can follow Conscious Anti-Racism on Instagram and Twitter at Jill Wiener, MD, J-I-L-L-W-E-N-E-R-M-D. And please check out our Conscious Anti-Racism book on Amazon.